0: Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am just returning today, Resurrection Sunday, after 10 weeks on sabbatical. Sabbatical is just a fancy word for a long vacation where you just get to eat whatever you want. Um, No, that's not true. The root word of sabbatical is Sabbath. Sabbath. And it's just uh, something that God instituted for rest. And so after four and a half years of ministry here of kind of pouring out, I had 10 weeks to kind of fill up and and retreat a little bit. And I'm really excited to be back this morning because I want to share something with you uh, that happened over the course of my sabbatical that surprised me a little bit. Uh, Because I come from a very conservative theological background, an orthodox theological background, and I had the opportunity while I was away to read some scholars and some theologians that I typically would not have the chance to read. And uh, what initially I thought was interesting uh, was something that I became convinced of as I continued to read these scholars and theologians over the uh, course of my sabbatical. And one of the things that they affirm and contend for is that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not uh, necessarily a staple of our faith. In fact, they contend that um, Jesus didn't necessarily have to have risen from the dead physically. Uh, Jesus could kind of live on in our hearts, Jesus could live on in the way we treat one another, uh, Jesus could be alive in the body, Jesus could be alive. In, um, in his word and, and, and kind of live on in spirit rather than a physical, bodily resurrection. And it's something, again, that I became convinced of, actually, surprisingly enough, over the course of my sabbatical. And I want to share it with you this morning and spend 40 minutes explaining uh, why I believe that to be the case, that Jesus didn't necessarily physically raise from the dead, but that he lives on in our hearts. And so I want to start with this truth right here. Look up here on the screen. <clears throat> You should have seen your faces, man. <laughs> oh, shoot. Easter only falls on April Fool's on a rare occasion, so you got to give me a little grace on this one. I, I, uh, I run all my jokes by uh, two very important people to me, one of my best friends, Andy Cherry, who's a worship pastor here, uh, along with the rest of the pastoral staff, Kevin, Dave, Carmen, uh, Andy, Notice. Um, did I forget one? Somebody else, I don't know. Whoever else is on staff here, I don't know. I've been gone, um, and I and I and I run by my wife. My wife said when I ran this by her, she said, um, uh, "If if the if what you're looking for is that people would want to come up on platform and choke you." Um, <laughs> then tell them that's how I felt. I almost came across this dinner table and choked you out for that joke right there. No, of course I don't believe that. Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead, physical, bodily way. I want to talk about that this morning. Before we do that, I want to confirm and affirm, as a church, what we've been doing as a church for hundreds, even thousands of years, and this kind of call and response thing that we do on Resurrection Sunday, and it goes like this. I say, he is risen, and you say what? Yeah, okay, so let's try that one more time. He is risen. Fantastic. For those of you who believe that, you know why you're here. I don't need to coach you. I don't need to tell you. I don't need to talk to you. For some of you in this place, you're maybe a skeptic or a cynic. Maybe you came with somebody today that, you know, promised you brunch after this. Or, you know, maybe you came with somebody today that promised you a date and they're good looking and I ain't mad at that. That's good on you. You do you, boo. That's fine. That's cool with me. All right. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask and answer to what I believe to be very critical questions And they're up here on the screen. The first is, did it happen? Did the physical resurrection of Jesus actually happen? I want to give you two reasons why. There are hundreds of reasons why I believe that this is, the answer to this question is an affirmative and emphatic yes. But I want to give you two reasons why this morning, maybe to help the cynic think or the skeptic think just a little bit more. I know I may not convince you in the next 35 minutes or whatever. I get that. But maybe just to kind of jog some thoughts in your mind to help you explore some spiritual things and encourage you to explore that on your own the second question is maybe even more critical for our day and age I don't think that one of these questions is more important but maybe this one's even more relevant and it's this why does it matter why does it matter I mean if the answer to this question is yes why does that matter because I run across people all the time believe it or not that really don't come from any kind of faith background or they don't call you know they don't have a church home they wouldn't ever even call themselves a Christian maybe maybe check this out they wouldn't even call themselves a theist. Like I don't even believe in God, but I believe that there's a guy 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe that. And it doesn't matter for anything when it comes to their marriage, their finances, their mental health, their day to day life, their work, their play, anything. And so, what I want to talk to you about this morning is that this answer is yes, and this answer is absolutely yes. And I want to tell you why. Is that cool? Are you okay with those two questions? Okay, let's ask this first question Does it matter? Um, sorry, did it happen? Yes, it happened, two big reasons. First is because of the witnesses, the witnesses. There were those that said, I saw him. I talked to him. I ate with him. I put my hands in his hands. I put my hand in his scar. Witnesses that said, I experienced and talked to the risen Christ. I saw him. In fact, Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth and he talks about some of these folks. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sin like the princess bride, not mostly dead, all the way dead, died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now stop there. It's a very fascinating thing to me here that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth in about 53 AD. And if you know your history a little bit, you know that Jesus died in about 33 AD. So he's writing this letter about 20 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. And there's a lot of people that would tell you, you know, uh, the resurrection wasn't part of early Christian thinking, early Christian consciousness. You know, that was a legend that developed over time. But the fact that Paul wrote this letter just 20 years after the event itself, any scholar, historian worth their weight in salt would tell you it takes legends far longer to develop than that. Over the course of 2,000 years of human history, when a legend develops, it takes it a lot longer than 20 years to develop. Moreover, check this out. What Paul is writing here is actually an early Christian creed. So back then, what would happen is oral tradition and oral history and things that were kind of part of the collective consciousness eventually would be published or written down. So this is an early Christian creed that Paul eventually wrote down. See, it works the other way around now. What is initially published in writing or it's published in music or it's published in a a movie becomes part of our collective consciousness. Let me give you an example. She said, do you love me? I said only partly. I only love my bed and my Mama, I'm sorry, right? For some of you who are above a certain age, that just went way over your head and you're like, what in the world's happening here? But for some of you who call this city your home, they're going, Drake, baby, it's Drake. Turn the six into a nine, you know what I mean? Turn it upside down. So here's what happens. In our day and age, that stuff gets published and then it becomes a part of our collective consciousness. It's something that we use in normal day-to-day language. It was the opposite back then. So in fact, this creed here predates Paul's letter. This, this, this creed would have been shared by the Christians, part of early Christian consciousness, something that they said to one another weeks, days even, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. This was not a legend that developed over time. This was the immediate affirmation of the Christian community. Then look what he says. He says, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, and then to the 12, his disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I want you to check this out. This is amazing. What does Paul say? Most of whom are still alive. Now I say this every Easter and every Easter I preach from here on out, I'll say the same thing. Here's what Paul is saying. Go ask them. It's only been 20 years. Some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive. People like your mom, and people like your godson or goddaughter or your co-worker or your neighbor, your friend, your brother, your sister, people that you know are not crazy, witness to the resurrection of Jesus. If it's your mom, maybe a little bit crazy, but the rest of those people are not crazy. The rest of those people are not crazy. He says, Go ask them. They're alive. This is not some legend that developed over time. Yes, we are witnesses. Over 500 of us experienced a resurrected, living Christ. Some of those people are up here on the screen, those names. Peter, Thaddeus, Philip, Simon, Andrew. Some of these guys were disciples of Jesus when he was walking the planet. Some were not. And each of them, because they affirmed the resurrection from the dead, not because they were good moral people, not because they, you know, people thought they wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire, because they affirmed the resurrection, because they said Jesus was dead and now he's alive, went to their death. They became martyrs, and that word martyr simply means witness. Peter was crucified upside down because he affirmed the resurrection. Thaddeus, who wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament, crucified because he affirmed the resurrection. Philip crucified, Simon crucified, Andrew, uh, tied to a cross, not nailed, so his death took longer, and he witnessed to passers passers-by while he was crucified. Two days it took him to die, and he was talking about the resurrection. All they had to do was go, you know what, it was a hoax, or you know what, I was pretty sure, but now I'm not sure. That's all they had to do, but they didn't. Why? Because they saw him. Thomas, run through with a sword, Bartholomew. I just wrote Bart here because Bartholomew would have went way over here. Bart uh, was skinned alive, skinned alive because he affirmed the resurrection. James 1, 2, and 3, these are different Jameses. James, son of Alphaeus, was killed at 93 years old stoned, and when he didn't die, they hit him over the head because he affirmed the resurrection and wouldn't give up on it. James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded, and the the man who accused him of affirming the resurrection actually came to Christ while James was being led to his execution and said, I affirm the resurrection too. So they beheaded them both simultaneously. This one blows my mind, this is the third James. This is James who was not a disciple of Jesus when he was running around on the planet. You know why he was not a disciple of Jesus? Because it was his biological brother, half-brother, Joseph and Mary's son. If your brother told you he was the Lord of heaven and earth, come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, what would you tell your brother? Homeboy, I've been in the bathroom after you. That, That is not true. See, this is James, right? They're biological brothers. But eventually James said yes, my brother, really died and really resurrected. And when James got confronted by the religious leaders of the law in Jerusalem, he said, yes, he really was dead. And yes, he's really alive. And look, what this is not a biblical source. This is another historical source. Look what happens. It says that the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, the preachers of the law, to their dismay, James boldly testified that Christ himself, my brother, Sitteth at the right hand of heaven, at the right hand of the great power, and shall come on the clouds of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees then said to themselves, We have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus. No, duh. But let us go up and throw him down, that they may be afraid and not believe him. See, the they are the folks in Jerusalem. See, they're trying to protect people. They don't want them to believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe them to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And James is saying, Yes, he did. And they're saying, Take it back. And he says, No. And they say, Take it back. He says, no. And so they threw him down. And they threw down the just man, and they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and kneeled down and said, I beseech thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does that sound familiar? That's Jesus' brother, biological brother, saying, I will not recant on the resurrection. I am a witness to what happened. And we have witnesses Hundreds of them, women, men, rich, poor, that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. The second reason for the skeptics and the cynics in the room, maybe even those who are followers of Jesus, but we get shaky in our faith a little bit sometimes, I get that. The second reason I want to tell you that's compelling to me is why I believe the resurrection is called the inference to the best explanation. The inference to the best explanation. This is what happens when we observe some facts in the world and we have to infer the best explanation based on the facts that we've observed. So let me give you an example and then we'll apply it to the resurrection. The example is up here on the screen. What do we have? Turtle on a fence post, right? When I Googled this image, I found a turtle with Donald Trump's head um, <laughs> photoshopped, and, and I want to show you. Um, it's right up here. This, just so everybody knows, has nothing to do with my sermon. I just think it's funny. So go back to the other turtle. Go back to the other turtle. Okay, turtle on a fence post. What we know? We got a fence post. We got a turtle, and he's perched on top of the thing. That's what we know. Those are the facts. Okay. What's the question? How to get there? What's what's our explanation? Well, he could have floated down gently from heaven and landed square on the fence post, right? Or, as we know, turtles are good climbers. He could have climbed at the top because he wanted to see everything, right? No, no, what's the best explanation? Someone what? Put him there, yeah. Probably for this stupid photo shoot for people like me. That's probably why they put him there. So let's apply the same thing to the resurrection. What are the facts that we know? And then let's infer the best explanation. The facts that we know is that there was an empty tomb. Jesus was buried, and then three days later, the tomb was empty. We know this for a fact because it's not just the biblical source that attests to it. History itself and even external sources attest to this very fact that the tomb was empty. So let's picture it this way. What if I told you that I had dinner with Rob Ford last night? Everybody knows who Rob Ford is? Everybody knows he's no longer with us. Okay, good. Okay. If I told you I had dinner with Rob Ford last night, the resurrected living Rob Ford, you would tell me you are dumb. You're nutty as a fruitcake, or you're lying, or it's a different Rob Ford, or something. And the reason why that wouldn't float in a city like this is because Rob Ford died here. We could go to the hospital where he died. We could go look at his death records. We could go down, to he's like Park Lawn Cemetery, I think, downtown in Toronto. And if worse came to worse, we could exhume the body and go, here is Rob Ford. You did not have dinner with him last night. He is dead. Same thing happens in Jerusalem. See, the disciples didn't go out to the outskirts of somewhere in the middle of nowhere and begin saying that Jesus, this Jesus guy, uh, was risen from the dead. Just like I, you know, if, if I was gonna say that Rob Ford rose from the dead, I'd go to Shanghai or Hong Kong or Munich or Texas because most of us are stupid and I could convince them, I think. So um, I'm from Texas, by the way, so I can say that, all right? So, So I would go to like the outskirts. I wouldn't go to Toronto because Toronto would go, no, we can affirm he's dead. He died here. His tomb is here. So that's why we know that there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Maybe not that Jesus resurrected. I'm not trying to argue that. I'm just saying that the tomb was empty. Look what one historian says, one scholar, says that the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, even for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. When the disciples start to say the resurrection happened, Jesus rose from the dead. If they didn't have an empty tomb, if the tomb still had a body in it, the whole thing just dies right there, right? They could go check. It's Jerusalem. It's not Rome. It's not Galilee. It's Jerusalem. The second reason we know uh, there's an empty tomb is, is that, and lots of reasons, but one of the t- texts that we know is called the Sefer Toledat Yeshu. It, it means the generations, the telling of the generations of Jesus or uh, the biography of the life of Jesus. It was written in the very early first, second, third century-ish by a Jewish individual who was really hostile toward Jesus. And pretty much every Jewish scholar and theologian, every Christian scholar and theologian would say, this is a hostile biography and someone made this stuff up because they wanted to discredit the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a real text. You can look it up online. And it was a hostile source. They said stuff like Jesus was an illegitimate child, and Jesus did sorcery and wacky stuff. But you know what this text does say? That Jesus was crucified, and three days later, his tomb was empty. It says the, the disciples stole the body. That's what happened. It's called positive information from a hostile source. We do have an empty tomb. Even people who hated him and wanted to discredit him said there was an empty tomb. It's a fact we have to face. We've got our turtle. Let's look at our fence post. Our fence post is this. Uh, It's the fact that people had real experiences with Jesus. The disciples had real experiences with Jesus. People outside of that group of disciples, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and others had real experiences with Jesus. They walked with him. They talked with him. They hugged him. They ate with him. They had real experiences with him, and they wrote them down. They talked about it. They had real experiences with Jesus. So we have three options. Either one, they're deliberately deceiving us. They're lying. But, but if you were lying, does it make sense to go to the cross to uphold a lie, to be crucified upside down, to be skinned alive? I'm just standing by my lie. We are going to rip your skin from your body. Are you sure? I'd back off pretty quick if I was lying, wouldn't you? They had real experiences. It could have been a mass hallucination, right? could have been like 500 of these people could have all had the same hallucination. Number one, that's not how hallucinations work. Even at Burning Man, that's not how hallucinations work. Number two, when an individual has a hallucination, they see things. They don't touch, eat, feel things. They only see and here, we have people who had real experiences with Jesus saying, I ate with him. I put my hand in his side. I hugged him. I touched him. They had real experiences, and it wasn't a mass hallucination. Our only other option is that they're telling the truth. They really saw him. They really had experiences with him. And finally, the church was established. The church was established there in Jerusalem across the Roman Empire. And check it out. Look at somebody next to you says, we're, and say, we're still the church. <laughs> we're still the church, talking about the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years later. These are the facts. And so what's the best explanation? What's the inference to the best explanation? The disciples stole the body from the tomb in order to prove to people that their Lord was risen and they kind of made up this big hoax. Again, if you were a disciple and they said, we're gonna throw you to the lions or produce the body, those are your options. Wouldn't you run pretty quick and try to produce a body? Or even find some random bones, right? Try to produce a body. When the church began to kind of infiltrate the Roman Empire and subversively overthrow the Roman Empire, if the Romans would have stole the body, if you were a Roman governor, if you were a Roman leader, wouldn't you have produced a body and said, oh, by the way, here's the body? If you were a Jewish leader and the, and the nature of Judaism began to be changed and transformed from the inside out because of these claims of the resurrection, wouldn't you have produced a body if it was stolen? The inference to the best explanation is simply this that Jesus was dead, that he was physically dead, and that he rose physically. And to answer our question this morning, yes, it happened. It happened. Jesus of Nazareth is in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and on the third day, rose again and lives even now. Here's, here's the second question, though. I think this is, again, even more relevant. Does it matter? Does it it matter? How does it matter? Why does it matter? If you're jotting notes down this morning, and I know not a lot of folks jot notes down on Easter, that's fine. But if you've got your phone, you want to jot this down or write it on your neighbor's hand or something like that, feel free to just grab their hand and write it down. Even if you don't know them, just write whatever you want on their hand. It'd be great. Okay? Write these two words down. Resurrection reimagines. This is why the resurrection matters. Just in general, just in life, resurrection reimagines, and I'm gonna help us understand that just a little bit as I talk about it, and then we'll apply it to the resurrection of Jesus. Anytime something you thought was dead gets new life, it gives you a brand new picture of reality. Do you ever realize that? You ever experience that? When you, when, if you had a friend that almost died because they were sick and then they got new life, you would see things in a different light. My mom got sick 15, 16 years ago. I know it was about that time because we had to watch the Diamondbacks win the World Series from her hospital room in October of 2001. That's only funny because my mom survived cancer. Now I have a new picture. When she got new life from God, I believe, and from the doctors, I see that differently. My experience of that time is different. Uh, it was hard at the time. It was difficult. I was worried. I was sad. I had all these emotions, but now I look back because of the new life my mom experienced then and experiences now, and I'll call her on the way home from Easter Sunday today, I see it differently. It gave me a new picture. It helped me to reimagine something, that new life. And it's not just in physical life, in, in the life of relationships or in uh, your personal life. In fact, I'll tell you a story about a time that our marriage, my marriage uh, to Amy got a new life. Uh, about three years into our marriage, Amy and I hit a wall. I mean, we really hit a wall and we were fighting and things were ugly. And I'm not talking about like Canadian fighting. You know what Canadian fighting is? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're sorry. I'm sorry. You're sorry. I'm sorry. Everyone's sorry. You're sorry. I'm sorry. Why don't we go to Tim Hortons? Like, that's, that's Canadian fighting. You know what American fighting is? Don't make me invoke my Second Amendment right, boy. I'm carrying right now. I will. I said, honey, you don't even have your concealed carry permit. I, I don't know. I mean, we, were, we hit a wall. And about three years in, uh, during that wall, and things were really, really challenging. We felt like our marriage was dead and it needed new life. Amy gave me some of the best marriage advice I've ever gotten. It, it, this has not even had to do with the sermon this morning. It doesn't have to do with the sermon. But if you're struggling in your marriage, here's some free-for-nothing advice. Uh, if you've lost your affection for your spouse, don't try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and regain your affection for your spouse. Here's the advice. Do what you did at first. Coffee dates, movie dates, music. What did you do at first that caused you to fall in love? Do those things again. So we started to do those things again. And we began to fall in love. And one of those things uh, came just a couple of days after we hit this wall, and it was just kind of carnage and you know blood everywhere, whatever. Like not. Literally, metaphorically speaking, all right? Just, and, and, and one of those things was we set up a Christmas tree in our home because setting up a Christmas tree for me and Amy is like a really big deal, and she does a great job of making our house feel so Christmassy and beautiful and wonderful. So we set up this Christmas tree, and it's a fake tree because we live in Phoenix. We lived in Phoenix at the time, and it's like a fire hazard. you got to keep fire extinguishers everywhere. They just spontaneously combust because of the heat, just like that. So we had to use a plastic tree, but ornaments everywhere, glass ornaments, a star on top and tinsel and lights, and it was awesome. And we stood back and looked at this seven-foot-tall tree, and we're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This is beautiful. And it was really, in a lot of ways, it was a symbol of our marriage. Like, we, We've built this thing together. Like, It's still beautiful. It's still wonderful. It's still magnificent. I remember it actually being a very emotional moment, and we actually realized in that moment, verbalized in that moment, this is a symbol of our marriage. Look how beautiful this is. It's wonderful. It was great. Amy walks into the other room. Start started getting ready for the day, uh, getting ready for the, the evening. We were going out, and I was grabbing a water or something, and, and all of a sudden, I heard a snap. <clears throat> and uh, one of the four things that holds the tree up, plastic things, had broken, snapped. And this seven-foot-tall tree, completely decked out with ornaments, came crashing down on my hardwood floor in my living room. And it wasn't a pretty crash because, remember, the lights were still plugged in, so it kind of spun, you know, as it fell down because the lights pulled it. And my dog comes running and barking, and there's glass everywhere on the floor, and there's a star on the floor. And what I looked at, I was like, our beautiful marriage is crashing down, and it's it's broken, and this is the worst. And I called Amy. I'm like, this is our marriage, you know. (laughs) We thought it was beautiful, and now look, you know. Since then, God has breathed new life in our marriage. We have a really great marriage. Challenges at times. Yeah, but we have a great marriage. I can look back on that moment with fondness. I mean, there's still a wound there. It still hurt in the moment. I'm telling you, it hurt. But I see it differently. Why? Because God has resurrected some things in our marriage. Do you see it? Resurrection, no matter what it is, helps us reimagine things. So let's talk about specifically the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus reimagines human history. The resurrection of Jesus reimagines human history. Look back at all of who we are, all of what we become, and we see tragedy, and we see hope, and we see atrocity, and we see goodness. We see things like the Holocaust. We see things like the Parkland shooting and the Vegas shooting and the Florida shooting and all this stuff. We see arguments on TV. We see threat of nuclear war. We see all of this stuff. And we look and we long and we ache. Who can solve it? Who can make it all make sense? Who can fix our confusion? Who can turn longing and despair into hope and good things? And then Jesus... Comes along. And Paul writes that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, watch this. God has made known to us his will and his purpose, he's up to something. He's made known. What is it? He'll answer it in a minute, but it's made in Christ. He set it forth in Christ. In other words, all of God's will and purpose and design for all of human history hinges upon Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the hinge that holds that door. Christ is what it's built upon, this risen Christ. And what's his will and purpose? Now watch this. Here, Keep going. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. When all the fullness of time has come, when this thing we know as time comes to a close, when human history wraps up, God will unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This word unite is the most curious word in the text. And I want to show it to you because it's absolutely fascinating because I want you to know this is what God is up to in human history. And the reason that we know it is because Christ has risen from the dead. It helped us reimagine human history. This word unite in the original Greek is up here on the screen. Those are the original Greek letters. Transliterated into English, it's this. Uh, it's pronounced anakephalaosastai. Try that with me. Good. This is very good. It's very good. Very good. Uh, for those of you who are Scrabble fans or Words with Friends fans, this is the longest word in the Greek New Testament, and it will play on Scrabble, and you can absolutely whip people with this, all right? My grandmother knew all these words growing up. That's why she kicked my rear end at Scrabble. Also, I was five, but she also knew these words, okay? And, th- and this word is translated unite. It's what we just saw in Ephesians chapter one, but it means a little bit more than that. It means to bring together for a common purpose or to form a whole. God will bring together for a common purpose or form a whole all things in heaven and on earth. Did you get that? Wow. God will bring together in terms of, keep going, in terms of uh, some unifying principle or purpose, that's Christ, all things, all of human history. Could you imagine every ache, every longing, the crusades, things done in the name of God, atrocities done in his name that don't make sense now, that cause us pain now, and that will forever be a scar on the face of human history, forever will cause us tears. Jesus will wipe those tears away. God will bring all those things together. He will collect them all and unite them all. And one day, because Christ is risen, God will flip the tapestry over so we see the side of beauty and not the side of pain. and we know this God has put a down payment on what he promises to do with human history and saying you see I raised Jesus from the dead I'll do this too Resurrection helps us reimagine human history. The Bible affirms this all over the place. In uh, the Book of Luke, uh, Luke writes this. He or Book of Acts, Luke writes this: that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He will bring justice for the uh, perpetrators of the Holocaust and all of those atrocities of human history. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance by raising Him. That's Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that God will reimagine human history, that he will bring it all together, and that it will form a whole. That's good news. The second reason why it matters is that the resurrection reimagines human identity. The resurrection reimagines human identity. I'm going to get a little bit vulnerable with you here this morning. Uh, which is always a little bit of a risk in front of so many people. So I, I kind of went back and forth this week as to whether I would get vulnerable, but, but I am gonna get vulnerable. Um, the reason that it, that it, that it kind of becomes a risk is sometimes people take the information that I share from platform and they do really weird stuff with it. Like, I'll just give you an example and I'm, I'll probably get fired for this, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> not whatever. Um, if you know any of the churches that are looking, um, <laughs> let me know. Um... But I remember when we were adopting, I, I shared from the platform that Amy and I never tried to have biological children. Some couples try to have biological children. They're unable to, and then so they adopt. Uh, that was not us. We, we didn't try to have biological children. We always wanted to adopt. That's the PG way to say that. But do I need to get R this morning, or does everybody understand what we're, what we're saying here? Nod your head or I'll get R, okay? PG, okay? That we never tried to have biological children. So uh, I shared that from the platform, talked about Kaya and talked about uh, adopting her. And then uh, an individual uh, who heard that from when I shared it from the pulpit used to drop off magazines for me in my office with articles on how to increase my sperm count. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, first of all, first of all, <laughs> a sperm count's none of your business. You know, second... This article said, like, eat a bunch of avocado or something. I'm eating avocado, you know, trying to increase my sperm count. It's like, okay, so here's the deal. Don't, don't do that with this information, okay? Just listen, okay? Here it is. Over the last 10 weeks, uh, I've been on sabbatical, and I have struggled pretty significantly with my own identity. Who am I if I'm not a preacher? Who, who am I? If I don't perform well, who am I when people tell me I stink at preaching? Who am I when people tell me I'm good at preaching? Who am I? And if I do it and I'm a pastor, you do it too. I need to get a bunch of likes on Instagram. I need to be a good mom. I need to perform well at work. I need to build this business. I need to be a good this, good that. What happens when people don't affirm me? And our identity starts to crumble really, really quickly. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. He gave us a new identity, and that new identity is contingent upon the risen Christ because he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are raised up with him, seated with him. Because he is raised, so are you. Because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, so are you. You are adopted, loved, redeemed, and forgiven. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. See, the very resurrection of Jesus gives us a new picture of our own identity. It reimagines human identity. Made in the image of God, being resurrected and getting new life each and every day because Jesus is risen. Now that's pretty cool. And that's good news. Four types of people in the room. I want to speak to all four And I've spoken a little bit to you, but just one more time. For those of you who came here on Resurrection Sunday knowing this risen Jesus, we'll have the opportunity to just praise and worship and raise our voices and raise our hands and raise our hearts and lives to him here in just a few minutes. Skeptics and cynics, I know... Uh, that the likelihood is I, won't, I didn't convince you these last 35 or 40 minutes, but I hope that this stirs something in you to examine on your own. Maybe come back here. You are always welcome in these chairs at Bayview Glen. You can even sit in a different chair if you want to. We'd love to have you here. Uh, for some of you, you might say, look, I, I get this. This makes some sense to me, but I still have a lot of questions. We have a ministry here called Alpha. Alpha is an opportunity to ask any question you wanted about life, God, faith, and eternity. And they even feed you at Alpha. So if you came for brunch today, uh, then come to Alpha for the meal. So, I mean, you just get food any place you go. That's the kind of church we are. You're welcome. Um, Uh, It starts Thursday, April 12th, and it's just an opportunity to sit around the table and ask great questions about faith. We'd love to have you there. All are welcome at Alpha. But then there are some in this room, and you're thinking, this makes sense to me today. And today's my day. I want to give you an opportunity to respond and say yes to Jesus and accept the invitation that he extends to you. And and I want to just be honest with you that me talking about these spiritual things up here is really challenging because I'm putting temporal language to eternal things. Do you get that? These are not easy truths to talk about. When you feel something stirring in your spirit in that you know, invisible, unseen part of you, you just know something is happening and you know something is stirring I think this is why Jesus talked about spiritual things in metaphor all the time. Jesus, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, it's kind of like if a guy was walking along and he found a treasure in a field. Jesus, what's the kingdom of God like? Oh, it's kind of like a mustard seed. Jesus, what's it like when you see spiritual things for the first time? Um, It's kind of like if a man went back to his mother's womb and was born again. Let's take that metaphor and and we'll end with this. There's a baby in a womb preparing to come out, and you put a stethoscope on that pregnant mom's stomach, and you spoke into the other end of the stethoscope to get the baby something to hear. What would you tell that child about what the child is about to experience? What would you start with? How would you explain the world to that baby? How would you put language to color and texture? to how bread smells when it's being baked, to how it feels to hold the hand of a friend. What, what would you tell that child about glorious things like pizza and snorkeling? What would you tell them? I mean, I would tell them, look, I know you're comfortable. I know you're being nourished. I know you're growing. I know you're warm in your little cocoon. But the eyes that are growing right now are meant to see the world on the other side. The mouth that you're given is meant to taste the world on the other side. The ears that you're given are meant to hear beautiful music on the other side, like Bach and the eagles. It's meant to hear that stuff. So come out. So for those of you who maybe feel like today is your day to say yes, I would say it's like being born again come out the eyes the spiritual eyes that God is growing in you are meant to see the spiritual things he desires to reveal are meant to hear your ears are meant to hear his voice your mouth is meant to taste and see that the lord is good spiritually speaking and i want to invite you to just to affirm these truths that paul shares in 1 corinthians 15 that jesus was died or was dead he died for your sin that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and say, God, I repent, I affirm these things. Please give me the new life that you promise. Would you pray with me? For those of you who would say today is your day, if you would like to say yes to that free gift that Jesus offers you, the free gift of salvation, the free gift of life, the free gift of new birth in him. The prayer is really simple. It's just something like this. You can pray it in your heart, it doesn't have to be out loud. God, here's your thoughts. God, I'm hearing the good news about you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th time, but I'm hearing it differently. And today I want to respond. God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, into the world, that he died for my sin, took the penalty that was mine to pay, paid it on my behalf, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day and now extends an invitation to new life. I believe that. So I walk away from the old life that I was leading that leads to death, and I walk towards you and ask you to lead me to life. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for being my Lord. It's not complicated. There's no class to take, no hoops to jump through, nothing. If you prayed that prayer today in your heart, God knows and there's only one time and one time only that heaven throws a party and it's this moment right now. Welcome to the family of God. That happened right now. Nothing else that you need to do. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I would just love to be able to pray for you. So if you said yes to Jesus for the first time today, yes to that invitation, I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. Nobody's looking around. Just show privacy. Just give these people some privacy if you would. Even if you're not a believer here, you don't call this place home, just ask you to close your eyes just to give them privacy. I'm going to ask you to do something really bold on three. I want you to just slip your hand up if you said yes to Jesus for the first time. One, two, three. God, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you so much for this weekend that we set aside and remember and celebrate. God, stir within our hearts an affection for Jesus. Stir within our hearts joy as we look forward to that day when you reimagine human history, as we walk day to day, as you reimagine and resurrect our own identities, reminding us how you loved us so well by sending your son into the world. Now we, the redeemed, we, the people of God, turn our hearts and lives to you as we sing. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. As we close in song, I would ask you to stand. And people of God, let's give our hearts and lives. Bring something new to the Lord. Sing at the top of your lungs. Even raise your hand. Some of you, I know that's really weird. I know you, nobody's going to call on you and say, do you have a question if you're raising your hand and worship? All right. But let's give it to God. Let's give him the praise and glory this Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Let's sing together.